Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, Cody and the worship team for leading us faithfully as always, y'all. And good morning. It is so great to see y'all. It's great to see more people being back around. I know there's been a lot of sickness going on. I know college has been out, so great to have them back and other things. Um, I feel the need to address something since people have made so many comments to me today. Yes, I am wearing a sport coat. Um, I feel like everybody and their cousin has mentioned something to me about wearing a sport coat. Well, if you were here last week, Jonathan Clark preached in my place, and he wore a sport coat. There, well, there are really two features about his uh, time up here. He wore a sport coat, and the length of his sermon was different than mine. So his dress and the length of his sermon were both different. I figure I'll meet you in the middle, and I will dress like him, but I can't tell you the length will be anywhere similar in that regard. Um, actually, the real story is I woke up, and this was my shirt that I had picked out to wear today. It was wrinkled, and I didn't feel like ironing it, so I put on a sport coat. There you go. So, y'all, it is great, once again, uh, to see all of y'all here today. If you would, open up with me to John chapter 5. John chapter 5. If you haven't been with us, we're going through the Gospel of John, and the, the series title is God on Display. What we've been doing is walking through it systematically, chapter by chapter, essentially verse by verse, and seeing how God is being put on display through the works of Jesus. I'll catch you up on where we're at in John chapter 5, but we'll begin with verse 19. So if you want to tap there or turn there, we'll be in John 5 beginning in verse 19. Before we start, I want to ask you one question. I want to ask all of you to listen closely, because it seems like an easy question, seems like a gimme, but I'm going to tell you it has the utmost importance for us today and for us to understand. And the question is simply this, did Jesus ever claim to be God? Did Jesus ever claim to be God? In 2014, the University of North Carolina New Testament scholar named Bart Ehrman, who has led the charge for this, wrote a book titled, How Jesus Became God. I remember having to read this work actually while I was in seminary. And to summarize for you the contents of the book, in this book he argues that Jesus never claimed to be God. That Jesus wasn't God. He never claimed to be God. As a matter of fact, whenever he died... His disciples were so overwhelmed with emotion that they had visions of Jesus, that he didn't really rise from the dead. He said that Jesus never said while he was on earth that he was his God. Rather, the disciples said since they saw these visions of Jesus, now they're going to write and say that he actually rose from the dead. In order for him to rise from the dead, he must be God. So this is how they started promulgating this message, that Jesus was God. Another New Testament scholar, uh, his name is, he goes by a pseudonym, so I won't even say it, but He writes in one of the more famous articles of his, the New Testament Gospels have no statement made by Jesus in which he identifies himself as God. This is a later edition. Now you might say, you're talking about New Testament scholars. Yes, there are liberal New Testament scholars that don't believe that the Bible is God's inspired word. Or that don't believe Jesus did any miracles. They don't believe Jesus came from a virgin. They don't believe that Jesus died and rose from the grave. They are just scholars of the New Testament as a text. I want to tell you this morning is if you believe that Jesus was and is God, I want to ask you, would you know how you could defend it if someone pressed you on it? Where would you go? How would you discuss that Jesus is actually God? This is quite pivotal to our faith, right? The Trinity is dependent on if Jesus is not God, then the Trinity falls. If the Trinity falls, our faith falls, right? This isn't just part of what we believe. This is a massive part of what we believe. 
Now hear this, the religious aspect in America is continuing to shift. We're having more Muslims, we're having more liberal theologians, we're having more Latter-day Saints or Mormons, as many of you may know them. All of these groups say Jesus is not God. All of them say Jesus was a prophet, he was a good teacher, but he was not God. If that doesn't get our attention, the common person in America today does not believe Jesus was God. According to a 2020 study, the vast majority of Americans actually do not believe that Jesus was God. If that's not troubling enough, more than one-third of professed Christians who were included in the study said they did not believe that Jesus was God. Y'all hear me. There is no way to know God if Jesus is not Him. If Jesus was not God, you and I are still in our sins. Nobody has paid for them in our stead. If there was no resurrection, then as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, eat Drink, be merry, do whatever you want to do, because tomorrow we die. So I would ask you, did Jesus actually claim to be God? Is he equal with God? The title of the sermon this morning is Jesus on Trial. Jesus on Trial. And we're going to look at John chapter 5, verses 19 through 47, rather quickly as we walk through. And see, if we can answer this question, did Jesus claim... To be God. And I would tell you again, pay attention, y'all. You need to know this. You need to know how to defend this. You need to know where you would go. So the background leading into John chapter 5, if you, if you weren't with us a few weeks ago, is this is a very typical aspect of what we see in Jesus' life. He does a miracle that sets up an opportunity to give a message. You'll see this through all four of the Gospels. A miracle that leads to an opportunity to give a message. Well, the miracle in this case was if you were here two weeks ago, it's the oddest miracle that we see. You have to go back to listen to why we call it that. We see Jesus walks into an area where there's a bunch of invalids, a bunch of people who are lame and sick. He walks up to a paralyzed man, says, stand up, get your mat and walk. And the man does it, which you think that would be a great thing. But the problem is, is he does this on the Sabbath. He does this on the Sabbath for a reason, because the religious leaders would have despised this. You see, they took God's law to honor the Sabbath, and they made a bunch of other laws on top of that, and then put them on top of people and said, if you don't obey these man-made laws, you're disobeying God. And Jesus wanted to say, I don't play by those rules. And so Jesus heals a man on a Sabbath, which leads to a problem, which undoubtedly he knew it would lead. So the religious leaders are indignant, and it leads to a confrontation between him and the religious leaders. And to this point, I want to pick up in verse 16 of chapter 5. It says this, and this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Now hear me, these things means miracles, means great works. He heals a man, and instead of them rejoicing with this guy, they are angry at Jesus for healing a man because they say that's against the rules. So they start persecuting him. Verse 17, but Jesus answered them, my father is working until now. And I am working. Now, I want you to hear this response in verse 18. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. you hear that. The religious leaders tried to kill him and eventually did kill him for this one main claim of blasphemy of saying that he is equal with God. I want to ask you this. Did the religious leaders think that Jesus was saying he was equal with God? It seems quite obvious. That's the whole reason they killed him, right? But what I want you to see is the way Jesus responds to this, 
we see John's kind of giving us a snippet in verses 16 to 18. Then 19 to 47, he opens up and gives us Jesus' response to all of this. And here we see many of the answers that I would encourage you to look to today. We're going to do something a little bit less typical for me. I want to read this whole passage through verse 30. Because what I'm going to do is I want to show you five proofs or five claims that Jesus makes throughout this text. And we're going to have to jump around a little bit. But I want you to get the overall landscape and then we'll jump in and look at five specific claims that he makes. Beginning in verse 19, it says this. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly. In other words, this is truth. I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all that He Himself is doing. And greater works than these will He show Him so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. For the Father judges no one but has given all judgment to the Son that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears My word and believes Him who sent Me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in Himself, so He has granted the Son also to have life in Himself. And He has given Him authority to execute judgment because He is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in their tombs will hear His voice and come out those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. Now what you see in this short discourse is Jesus lays out five very clear claims. And I'm going to summarize them because you could even go more. Five claims that he's making to equality with God, to unity to God, to oneness with God. And the first claim he makes is this, unity in action. He shows unity in action. In other words, he says, what the Father does, that is what I do. In other words, whenever you see Jesus, you're seeing the very works of God. Verses 19 through 20, he starts talking, truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord but only what he sees the Father doing. And he keeps talking about the Son. Now you might ask, why didn't Jesus just identify who this Son is, the Son of God? Well, he does. That's why we read through verse 30. Look at verse 30 again. I can do nothing on my own as I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. It is very clear Jesus is making one thing certain, right? I am the Son. I am the Son of Man. I am the Son of of God. And whenever you see me, you see the literal works of God. You know, a few chapters later in John chapter 14, he's talking to Thomas, poor doubting Thomas. That's all we know about him, right? And Thomas tells him, just show us the Father. Look at what Jesus' response to him is. John 14, 9. I can do nothing on my own. Oops, sorry, I'm reading 530. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Listen to what he says. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. What is he claiming? The works that I'm doing. If you look at me, you see the very works of God himself. Paul says later on in Colossians 2.9, In Christ, the whole deity of God dwells bodily. 
Hence our sermon series title, God on Display. When you see the works and words of Jesus, you see the very works and words of God. Secondly, we see unity in life. First, unity in action. Secondly, we see unity in life. As the Father gives life, so does the Son. Look at verse 21. It says, For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. Now down to verse 26. For as the Father has life in Himself, so He has granted the Son also to have life in Himself. So He's saying the Son can give life to other people. Y'all listen, you cannot give away something that you don't possess, right? Remember in college, I had a roommate who used to always have this joke he would say to me. Anytime I would leave the house, he'd make some comment about how he might sell something while I'm gone. But what he would sell would be my stuff. So I'd leave and he'd be like, hey man, if you get back and your dresser's gone, I don't know anything about it. Or if you get back and your bed's gone, I'm sorry, I don't really know anything about it. I remember leaving being like, he's just crazy enough. He might actually sell my stuff and not think that I would have a problem with it. Y'all, can you imagine if I walked up to you this morning and said, man, I really like those shoes. By the way, I just sold them for 30 bucks. Can you take them off for me? Like, you cannot give away something that you do not possess, right? We all know that. Jesus says, I can give away life because I possess it. I can give away life because life is in me. Just as life is in the Father, life is in me. This goes all the way back to John 1.4. Whenever John is making his point, he says, in him was life. And the life was the light of men. Unity in life. Third, we see unity in judgment. Unity and judgment. And this one might be one of the more interesting ones that he says. He says, the Father gives all judgment to me. In other words, the fate of every human on this planet is before one man, Jesus Christ. Look at verse 22 and 27. He says, for the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. Down in verse 27. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. Yo, whenever he says this idea, son of man, you'll see it later on. Whenever he uses this type of language, the religious leaders get in a frenzy. And there's a reason for this. The son of man was a title that was distinctly given to this Messiah, this coming one, this anointed one who is going to come. And Jesus says that I am him. I want you to see what, what, what this prophecy is about the son of man, though. If you go all the way back to Daniel chapter 7, you see Daniel... At night, essentially you could just call them the night visions of Daniel. He sees several things. And what he sees is really interesting. I want you to look. I should have it up on the screen for you. Daniel 7, beginning in verse 9, it says this. This is what Daniel saw. He says, as I looked, I saw thrones were placed. And the ancient of days, meaning God the Father, took his seat. His clothing was white as snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him. And ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment and the books were opened. So what Daniel sees is he gets these visions from God. And he sees this someone on the throne like the ancient of days. And this ten thousands upon ten thousand standing in front of him ready to be judged. And I want you to see as he sees more. Verse 13. He says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, languages should serve 
Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and His kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Who is this Son of Man? The Son of Man is someone who's done something to where the Ancient of Days has given Him the keys to judgment. You know what that is? It's the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. After Jesus laid down His life and took it up again, He says, all authority is now mine. Everything is mine. You see, after after he dies, after he raised, Philippians 2, this is where we get this great passage where God has bestowed upon him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. This is Jesus. The vision he has is Jesus after he's completed his work. What is Jesus saying? He's saying, I'm the son of man. I'm that guy. And the only person who can execute, execute judgment is God. Don't miss this fact that these men are putting Jesus on trial and Jesus is saying, one day you'll stand before me and you'll be the one on trial. The fourth thing we see here is unity and powerful word. I know that doesn't sound good, but it is what it is. Unity and powerful word. In essence, to hear my words, Jesus says, or to hear the Father's words, and they have the same exact power. Look at verse 24 and 25. 24 and 25, he says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. I want you to see first, he says, whoever hears my words and believes, believes in him. So he's saying my words, believe in what I'm saying. You believe in me, you're believing in him. Oneness. You believe in him, you believe in me. And you pass from death into life. Verse 25 is is really building on this. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. What is Jesus saying? He's saying an hour is coming, but the hour also is now here where dead people will hear the voice of the Son of God and they will live. Y'all, he's talking about the souls of man. People who are dead in our sins and trespasses will hear the voice of the Son of God and believe in Him and through believing they will pass from death. To life. I've told you this, John, from the beginning to the end, belief in Jesus, life in Jesus isn't just an eternal thing, it begins now. We see verse 28 and 29, he adds on this. He says, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Y'all don't miss this. Jesus says, There's a day that's coming that he will speak, and whenever he says, Come out, all who are dead will come back. I've heard it said before in John chapter 11, whenever Jesus, if you remember the story of him and Lazarus, Lazarus is dead. He's dead for four days. The way the KJV says it is he now stinketh, like he's been dead for a while now. I've heard it said before, you know, he looks at the tomb and he says, Lazarus, come out. And I've heard people comment, it's a good thing he said Lazarus' name, because had he not, all of them would have come out. See, whenever Jesus speaks, it happens. That's what happens. He says, there will be a day whenever all will come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Now, I want to be clear here. This isn't preaching some, hey, those who go to heaven or get life are the ones who do good. You have to do right and you go to life. You do bad, you don't go to life. No, remember, a thesis of John all throughout is those who believe are those who do. Throughout, that's his point. That's why one second he could say, if you believe, you pass from death into life. And the next he could say, those who have done good will go to the resurrection of life. And those who have done evil, to the resurrection 
of judgment. He's not preaching another gospel here. But we see unity in judgment. Fifth, we see unity in honor. And this one's short and sweet. Verse 23. He gives the Son judgment because, verse 23, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. So Jesus says, if you honor Me, you're honoring Him. If you're honoring Him, you have to honor Me. We are one in this regard. So I want you to hear, Jesus' claims are clear and yet extravagant. Me and God the Father are equal in action. I'm able to give life as He gives life. I've been given the keys to give judgment to every single human being. We're equal in powerful word. We are equal in honor. These are quite significant, right? Did Jesus ever really claim to be God? I'll tell it to you the way C.S. Lewis does in his famous book, Mere Christianity. If you haven't read it, I would encourage you, buy a copy and read it. But C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity answering this question says this, and I have the quote for you on the screen. He says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, meaning Jesus. They say, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. Now, here what he says here. You can shut Jesus up to be a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Yo, hear me. If people want to talk to you about did Jesus claim to be God or not, don't use your words. Use his. Just go to the Bible and say, let's go look and see what Jesus had to say. Why did the religious leaders continually try to kill him because they said he's claiming to be God? Blasphemy that he is God. Obviously, they understood what Jesus was saying. The way we defend the truth is we must tell them what Jesus said said you know now i know in a room this size i'm sure there are some who either one don't believe this have doubted this or are less than certain about it and what i would ask you is i would ask you the same thing that c.s lewis later asks in this same chapter he says whenever it comes to jesus you have one of three options that you must choose you either could say jesus was a liar he was a lunatic or that he is lord those are the only three options Either he lied about the whole thing, not a great moral teacher, you shouldn't follow him. He's a lunatic, he's crazy. He says all these things like he'll say in the next chapter in a few weeks, eat my flesh, drink my blood. Essentially, you must have me to have eternal life. Either he's a lunatic or he was what I would say that he is, what Jesus said that he is. He is Lord. What we see here, y'all, is Jesus makes one thing clear. He claimed to be God. Now, some of you might say, well, Anyone can make these claims. You're talking to somebody, and they say anybody can claim to be God, and they're right. Claims are not that hard. Yeah, I grew up, uh, whenever I was in high school, I'm sure like many of you, I had a friend that was that friend. What I mean by that is this is a guy who told us often that he was being recruited by several big-name schools throughout the U.S., which we all found interesting because he wasn't even one of the better players on our basketball team. But he was recruited by all these different players. Well, I see him a year later because I graduated ahead of him. 
He tells me that he's going to play for one of these big-name schools. And then I see him a few years after that, and now he's transferring to another big-name school. Then I see him a few years after that, I think the last time I ever saw him, he just got back from playing professional ball in Europe. And while all of these claims were great, there was one major problem. He didn't have any proof to anything that he said. Anybody can make a claim, right? Yo, whenever I was in high school, I ran the 100-meter dash. I broke the Louisiana State record for the 100-meter dash. I even got close to the Olympic record. Don't you believe that? You probably shouldn't laugh that much about it. But anybody can make that claim, right? Just because some of you are still wondering, no, I didn't do that, right? I was the second leg in the four by one, which means I was the slowest of the four, right? My point is this, is anybody can make a claim. But the question is, is can you put your money where your mouth is? Is there any proof? Claims without proof mean nothing. You know what I love about Jesus is he's the one who says this himself. Look at where he goes next, verse 31. He says, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. What is he saying? He's saying if these are just words, if I'm the only one saying this, if I'm just saying these things and there's no proof, don't believe me. Yo, isn't this comforting to hear from Jesus? He doesn't just say, hey, listen to me or burn. That isn't what Jesus says. He doesn't just say, you must believe in what I say. You have to listen to what I say. Just, just believe what I'm saying. No, he says, I will give you proof. Isn't that comforting to get from him? And what we see is he moves into this mode of his discourse and he gives them four proofs four witnesses if you will to the claims that he made and how they are true look at verse 32 through 35 look at where he turns first he says there is another who bears witness about me and i know that the testimony that he bears about me is true you sent to john and he has borne witness to the truth not that the testimony that i receive is from man but i say these things so that you may be saved He was a burning and shining lamp. And you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. The first witness, the first proof he points to is John the Baptist. And he says this almost like, I really don't need any humans to to prove that I am who I am. He literally says that right there. In 32, there's another who bears witness about me. Or verse 33, or 34, I'm sorry. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man. In other words, I'm just going to give you this so that you understand who John the Baptist is talking about. It's interesting what he says here about John the Baptist. He says, for a while you sent to him. For a while you listened to him, and then at some point they stopped. Why did they stop? They listened whenever John the Baptist was saying, I'm not the Messiah. The Messiah is coming. The Messiah is coming. The Messiah is coming. They stopped listening whenever he said, you must repent because you need him too. They stopped listening whenever he said, Jesus Christ, that man right there, he is the one who is the Messiah. And he wasn't the Messiah they wanted. He said you had him first. Notice where he goes to next. Verse 36. He says, but the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I'm doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. The first proof is John the Baptist. The second proof is Jesus' works. Literally, he says, look at my life. You know, if you're doing the church-wide reading plan right now, that's great. I'm glad that you're doing that with us. You have, should have just completed or got to the very end of Mark, Mark's gospel. One of the things that I noticed this week that I found interesting or that you may have seen is that Jesus has constantly people throwing things at him, saying he has done this, or they're trying to get, indict him on several different areas. And it says over and over again, they could not find a cause with him. 
They could not find an issue with him. They could not find any reason to say that this guy is not a great guy. And Jesus is under this microscope, but he lived a pure and holy life that was without flaw and without blemish. But not just his life, we see Jesus' miracles. Y'all, Jesus healed the lame, healed the blind, healed the sick, healed the disease, brought some dead people back to life. I don't know about you, but I don't have a cousin that can do that. I don't have friends that can do that. I don't know anybody in history who's been able to do that. And Jesus just did it case in point by walking up to a man and saying, get up, walk. He's saying, the very works I'm doing are saying, I am not like you. I am God. If I make this claim without showing you all these works, then you don't have to believe me. But look at what I am doing. Not just his life, not just his miracles, but even think about the teaching of Jesus. Your people marveled when Jesus spoke. They marveled. They hung on to his word. He's got to be the greatest teacher in history, right? He's Jesus. They said whenever he taught, he taught with an authority like they just hadn't heard before. He taught with an authority almost like he had the authority of the word. You know why? Because he did. <laughs> Jesus' life, Jesus' teachings, Jesus' miracles, all of these testify that he is who he said he is. Verse 37a to the third one. He says next, and the father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. I think that's a pretty good witness to call to the stand. I don't know. God himself, which is the third proof he gives. He says, God, the father himself, not just John the Baptist, not just my works, but God, the father himself has borne witness and testified to who I am. You know, most notably, we can say this with Jesus' baptism. This was a public event. It says whenever Jesus was baptized, it literally says that the clouds tore open and a voice says, this is my beloved son with whom I am pleased. He got the encouragement, if you would. He got the, the, the reference of God the Father himself. He was endorsed by God the Father himself, you could say. But Jesus is saying you choose not to listen. Jesus' works are the very works of the Father. You choose not to. To listen, God the Father himself has testified about me. And we see God the Father has testified about me in another way, and it's through the fourth point that we see in 37 through 39. The Father sent me. He has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, And it is they that bear witness about me. The fourth proof he gives is the scriptures. Which were written within 1500 years of his life. Over the course of about 1500 years before Jesus ever came to earth. He says the scriptures that you believe are inspired by God bear witness about me. I think it's interesting to note one thing you may see here. I just told you that one of the ways that God the Father bore witness to Jesus is that he spoke and said that this was his son in whom he was pleased. And you see in verse 37, Jesus says, His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you. So if that's an endorsement that God the Father endorsed him, why does he say that you haven't heard his voice? In other words, he says you haven't listened to his voice. He says you can't hear his voice because his word does not abide in you. Because they make the fatal error of searching the Scriptures, thinking that through the Scriptures they might have life. Y'all hear me. You and I will never study the Scriptures as much as a religious leader of their day. 
You could try to start right now, but you won't catch up. By the age of 12, the first five books of the Bible memorized. By the age of 15, if you continued in rabbinic school, you would have numerous other passages in the Bible memorized. These guys knew the Old Testament through and through. But the issue is, is they believed by knowing the Word, they would be accepted by God. Hear me, friends, you can't know the Bible enough to be accepted by Him. They thought that by their own knowledge, by their own study of the Scriptures, God would love them, that God would accept them. But the truth is, is that's not the way that it works. You could come to church your whole life. You could read through the Bible your whole life, and you could think that by doing that, God will accept you whenever you get to heaven. That isn't how it works. The question is, is do you believe in Jesus? Do you have a relationship with Jesus? Do you know Jesus? And this is what Jesus is laying out right here. He's saying they missed the life giver, which the whole word even talked about. They missed what the scriptures had to say about me because all scripture tells my story. All scripture bears witness to Jesus. You maybe don't know this, but there's a lot of different preaching camps so to speak. Not like little camps you go to, but like different camps that people are in regards to preaching the Word. Some people say, how do you interpret the Bible rightly? Specifically, this, this topic gets a little bit more debated whenever you get into the Old Testament. What I would tell you very clearly is I'm of the camp that says all of Scripture points to Jesus. All of Scripture talks about Him. All of Scripture tells us about the Gospel and about Jesus from beginning to end. A lot of people don't agree with that. They don't think you should preach Jesus from Deuteronomy, to which I say Jesus kind of says that Deuteronomy is about Him, so we should preach Jesus from Deuteronomy. But I think that you would agree at times that can be really difficult, right? If you're in the reading plan with us right now, you've probably read through some of the Old Testament, and you're thinking, dear Lord, what is going on? Right? Many of you know if you get the church email that I've started back, back school, Well, two weeks ago, I was in class, and one of the things we were talking about was preaching through different genres of the Bible, focusing on the Old Testament, and specifically focusing on how Christ is brought out in every single passage. In all the Bible, you see Jesus. It's about Jesus. And so what they did is they actually broke us up into twos, and they gave us a project. They said, we want you to pick a particularly difficult text and show us why should we preach on this? What is the value for our people? How does it point to Jesus? And so we had to pick a specific genre. Well, me and my partner were together, and I was trying to be nice whenever he asked, what genre would you like? And I'm like, man, what would you like to do? And he says, let's do Levitical law. And I was like, oh my gosh, of all the things, dude, you pick Leviticus, the book that single-handedly wipes out people trying to read through the Bible in a year, right? Like you pick that book to go through. So we get Leviticus, we have to teach on a Levitical code. Not only that, the teacher says, don't pick an easy one. So we start sifting through Leviticus and we end up at Leviticus 25. In the middle of it, it has property laws for the Jews who are in the promised land. And I thought, dear Lord, here we go. Property laws. And so me and the guy are talking. I said, look, you study the actual passage we're going to present. I'm going to study the context of it. I'll answer these questions. You answer these and we'll come together. And the way class works while I was there, I'm in class from 9 to 6. Went to eat. I got back to my hotel room right before 8 and I started working on it. And it was 10 o'clock, and I'm still sitting there just typing, writing, because I'm amazed. I'm like, it, it points to Jesus. Everything points to Jesus. 
The whole purpose of property laws is in the context of the year of Jubilee. You maybe don't know what the year of Jubilee is, but the year of Jubilee for God's people is every 50th year, God says, don't do any work for a year. The property laws that come into play here, he says at the year of Jubilee, everything that you cannot pay is redeemed. All debts are forgiven. If you've lost your property because you couldn't pay, it's now yours again. It's been redeemed. It's like a reset button for the nation of Israel, you could say. He says whenever the trumpet blows, you have rest for a whole year. My friends, what's the end going to be like? Jesus says, you know what, in year 49, take your food, but don't replant. Don't replant in year 49. You cannot do any work in year 50. Year 51, you're having to replant again. You won't be getting your crops till year 52. He says, all three years, I'm going to take care of you. And specifically, if you look in the wording in Leviticus 25, he says this. He says, I'm going to feed you. I'm going to feed your families. I'm going to feed your extended family. I'm going to feed strangers that come through your land. I'm going to feed your cattle. I'm going to feed the cattle and animals of the land. In other words, he says, my grace is about to overflow on you. Friends, hear me. I'm looking at it going, wow, all of it. And so I was excited. We get to class the very next day, and I asked my buddy, I said, hey, do you mind if I start? I said, I just want to start with just a sentence. And he goes, sure, that's fine, because he was supposed to start the presentation. I said, good morning, y'all. Please open your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 25. I don't know if I'll ever say that again, so let me at least say it now, right? And we talked about Jesus from property laws. Y'all hear me. All of Scripture testifies to Jesus. Luke 24, verse 27. Jesus, this is after he's risen from the dead. He shows up to two of his disciples and he says this to them. It says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the Scriptures the things that concerned himself. In Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount, verse 17, he tells them, I've not come to abolish the law and prophets, but I am the fulfillment of all of it. He says, not one dot of an I, not one cross of a T is not going to be fulfilled in me. He says, even the letters of it, it's about me. All of it is about me. And what you'll find, y'all, is the Gospels are the interpretive key to the whole Bible. You want to know what the Old Testament means? Look at the Gospels and interpret. You want to know what everything after the Gospels means? Look at the Gospels and interpret. The Gospels are the interpretive key for all of scripture. Many of you know I've talked about the Jesus Storybook Bible by Sally Lloyd-Jones before. It's a kids Bible that I love to read. It is excellent the way that she presents it. And I would say it to you this way. The subtitle of that book says this. Jesus Storybook Bible, every story whispers his name. Every story whispers his name. Now look at what Jesus does. He says, "Here are my claims, but here's my proof. John the Baptist, my own life Examine it. God Himself. The Scriptures. And what Jesus is saying is, I've given you more than enough proof to show that I am God. The question is, is do you believe my claim and testimony? Will you bow to the Son of Man that you one day will have to give an account to? And what we see in Jesus-like fashion is He now poses that question to them in real time. He says, you think I'm on trial? Friends, you're the one that's on trial. And notice what He does here. He turns and puts it back on them. Verse 39 and following. He says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. 
He says, I have come in my Father's name. Or let me stop there for a second. What you see here very clearly is Jesus says, the reason that you don't believe these proofs is you refuse to. The reason you don't believe these proofs is because you're, you're resting in yourself. And Jesus says something here. I do not receive glory from people. Y'all, this is a shocking statement. You know what Jesus is saying? He's saying he had nothing to gain by coming here for himself. I do not get glory from people. What is he saying? He's saying, I have all the glory that anybody could ever give me. He did not come in order to garner followers to get glory. He came to manifest the glory that he already had. He said, I have all glory. In other words, whenever Jesus came to us, it's because he wanted to. He doesn't need your praise. He doesn't need my praise to make him feel better about himself. He has glory. It is who he is. And he says an awful indictment, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. And he says briefly, verse, 44, verse 43, I've come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. He says, you cannot love God and not believe in me. You can't love God and not believe in Jesus. He's the road. He's the way. He's the truth. He's the life. Look at verse 44. He says, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another? And do not seek the glory that comes from the holy God. First, he says, you cannot love, or you, can't, you cannot love God and not believe in me. Secondly, he says, you cannot love God and seek your own glory. I am life. I am the life giver. You must give up yours and come to me. It's about me. But he says, you cannot love God because all you do is seek glory from people. It's about you. Verse 45 through 47, he says, do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. Another reason to say Deuteronomy speaks about Jesus. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? His last indictment is you cannot love God and not believe the scriptures. You cannot love God and not believe my word. And in a crazy fashion, Jesus goes from being on trial to putting them on trial, saying, how will you respond? Friends, hear me, all of us one day will stand before Jesus to either go to life or to go to judgment. There's only one way to pass from the judgment to life, and that's by believing in Jesus. And as Jesus says here, that one day the dead will hear his voice and they will come alive. I would ask you this morning, have you heard the voice of Christ? Have you heard Jesus? I'm not telling you audibly. I'm saying what he has to say about us through his life and through his word. Have you heard Jesus' voice say that you are a sinner? That you are lost in your sin? That you are, have the utmost need? You are completely needy. You are in desperate need of someone to save you and make you right before God. You cannot do it on your own. Church attendance will not do it. Going to the Bible studies will not do it. Being the best moral person you could possibly be will not do it. He says, have you heard my voice whenever I say, I've already done it for you. Don't hope that you will be accepted by religious practice. Know you'll be accepted by placing your faith in me. Have you heard the voice of Jesus to say, lose your life and you'll find it in me? Have you heard the voice of Jesus to say, running after your own pleasures, your own way is not it. Life can only come through me. I'd ask you secondly this morning, do you see that Jesus does not give us any other option than these three? He's either a liar, 
he's a lunatic or he is Lord. If you believe he's Lord, I want to ask you, can you defend this? There are people all around us. This is a common disagreement. Can you defend this? Maybe today you need to go home and just rehash through John 5 and do your own best to break it apart. And say, God, make me stronger in this. Let me work through these questions on my own. But can you defend Christ from his word that he is who he says he is? You know, a lot of application in this text is what we call stored application. You store it up in your mind or in your heart and you use it as needed. But there's one aspect of here that's immediate application. Now I would ask it to you like this. We aren't just called to look to the witnesses of Jesus. We're not just called to look to the proofs that Jesus gave back then. Rather, if you are a follower of Christ, if you are a Christian, then you are to be a witness, a proof, if you will, of yourself. You are to be a proof that whenever Jesus says that somebody will go from death to life, they will. You are to be a proof that whenever Jesus says, anybody who comes to me, I give new life, that he does. You are to be a witness to the truth of Jesus that whenever he says, if I come in, if you bow to my authority, if you believe in me, you will live. And you will be changed. You will be different. A simple note that I went over was I want you to notice the comment that Jesus made about John the Baptist's life. Once again, if you go back, in verse 35, he says, he was a burning and shining lamp. John the Baptist. Matthew eleven eleven. Jesus says, the greatest man to ever walk the planet apart from him. A burning and shining lamp. Y'all think about what a lamp is. This is not a battery-powered light that lasts for a long time. This isn't an iPhone that is only used for the light on it. No, a lamp is a candle. How much light does a candle give off? Not a ton, right? Just in the immediate context around it, does it give life? How long does a lamp, a candle burn? Not long. You know, don't miss what we see here. It doesn't give off much light and it doesn't last for very long. Hear me clearly, y'all, we're not here for long. We're not here for long. Life is short. You know it, I know it. And the deacon texts this week, I have somebody text and say, man, there's just so many deaths right now. And then the same day, I hear of two more. Life is but a breath. James says it's a mist. It's here, and then it's gone. Hear me, are you a lamp? Are you a light to those who are around you? Are you shining? Matthew 5, 14, Jesus says, you are the light of the world, a city set on a hill. You are the light. Are you shining? Hear me, it's going to be a moment and the people you're working around, you're not going to be working around them anymore. Either the many years that you're there are going to pass by like that and you won't be working beside them anymore. Your classmates that you're around, the semester will be over soon. High school, junior high will be over soon. You won't be around them for much longer. Your hobbies, you won't be around those people for long. The areas of influence that you have, you won't be around those people for long. Your family members, you won't be around them for long. Your friends, you won't be around them for long. Before you know it, you'll blink and you'll go, where has the time gone? Friends, the time to shine is now. The time to say, Jesus, 
is the one who is the reason I do everything that I do. I ask you, are you a lamp? Do you say, God, my life is to please and honor you? Everything I do is going to filter through that. Does this please God? With the way you spend your time, with the way you watch entertainment, with the way you live your life, with your hobbies, with the way you raise your family, whatever it might be, can you say all this, the foundation of everything I do is Jesus? And the reason I do it is to please Him. Friends, we are a lamp, and we can either be dull, not making much of an impact around us, or we can be a burning and shining lamp and make an impact in the spheres that we have. My question to you is simply this. Does your life bear witness to the truth that Jesus gives life? Does your life bear witness to the truth that whenever Jesus comes in, he drives all other things out? We're here to testify to the truths of Christ with our words and our lives. Did Jesus claim to be God? Absolutely. The question is, is have you bowed to him? To you. Let's pray.